And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I can tell you this from my own experience. If you're in a political communications battle, you want to be in a foxhole with Stephanie Cutter. For decades, Cutter's been a go-to communications strategist and operative for Democratic presidents, presidential campaigns, for Ted Kennedy and Harry Reid and the Senate Democrats. She's the founder of Precision Media, one of the country's premier public affairs firms, a lawyer and a frequent television commentator, and now an Emmy-nominated producer of Celebrating America, the Biden inaugural television show. She also has a hell of a personal story, as you can hear for yourself right now. Stephanie Cutter, how the hell are you? My old friend. Pretty damn good. How about you? <laughs> good. Good to see you. You too. Um, you know, we could start off with a list of your uh, illustrious achievements, and we will get to those. Uh, you being one of the, you know, like a big Washington power broker now. <laughs> uh, but I want to talk about Stephanie Cutter uh, from Taunton, Massachusetts and how how you grew up first of all cutter let's just establish this when did the uh, when when did your family arrive here well that's a good question on my mother's side they both of her parents and gr- set of grandparents came over from ireland yes some no in the late 1800s that. some in the early 1900s um and they settled in the Taunton area, you know, technically in what's called Somerset, <laughs> but yes. unless you're from that area, you have never heard of it, uh, which is just a very small town next to Taunton, south of Boston. And on my father's side, there's the Cutters came over, some on the Mayflower even. They've been here for hundreds of years, and but he, his mother was Italian and Irish, his mother was, his father was English. Uh, you mentioned your dad. He wasn't really a huge presence. Is, am I wrong about that? Your 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 parents split up. Mm-hmm. My parents divorced when I was in second grade, and uh, we lived with my mom. Uh, so would sometimes go on weekends with my father. He moved to Maine, um, but mostly grew up with my mom. And she was a school teacher. She was a school teacher, um, and then um, when I was in either late middle school or high school um, or early high school, she um, she had always been sort of a special ed teacher, yeah. and then she took a job um, with um, a, a a state run institution to help the um, mentally disabled, mm-hmm. um, mostly adults. Um, and that was her primary job when I was young. You, you so, know how I feel about special ed yes. teachers, the heroes of the world. Uh, I speak as a parent uh, here. Uh, but, um, you know, the way you've talked about it in the past, and we're very good friends, obviously, but um, your mom was really kind of a heroic figure um, in raising you and, and your two brothers. Um, and, uh, and by the way, what was it like with two brothers? You, you're one of the most competitive people that I've ever met. And I assume part of it is growing up with two brothers. I had to keep up. 
it was it was a competitive household. Um, I have an older brother and a younger brother, and my as I said, my mother raised us on her own, and um, it was uh, it was great having two brothers. There was always something to do um, if I wanted to do what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so lots of athletics, and you know we uh, we were taught to you know, shoot guns and hunts and all of those things at a very young age. So we did a lot of that and a lot of baseball and soccer and football. And, um, and you know, we were all very involved in our community um, because my mother had been a teacher for so long and my family had been in that area for so long um, that there was, we were always doing something in the community. My grandfather was, um, was involved in local politics. Yeah, he was um, a guy who kind of turned you on to politics. Huh? He was, yeah, and he was uh, he was a lot of things, but he he started his own insurance company and he grew it into a pretty successful insurance company. But then he was the honorary fire chief and the honorary p- police chief and the president of a local bank, and you know, um, and a so fixture in the community, there. a very a fixture and in a in a small community, but uh, you know, half of which we were related to. Um, but there wasn't a parade that took place that he didn't have us in there with him in his car as the, um, uh, grand marshal or whatever it was, but he just took us wherever he went. Um, there were seven of us at that time and wherever my grandfather went, he had some, some, you know, confab of grandkids with him. What about the politics of it. And Massachusetts politics is a special kind of politics, especially Irish, Democratic, Massachusetts politics. What was it about it that that attracted you? Well, you know, the, that, that kind of politics at such a local level and at that time, it really wasn't partisan. Um, it, was, it was more agenda-based, but not uh-huh. party-based. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I was too young to really understand what it was, but I liked the the public nature of it. I liked, you know, the discussions, the meeting with people, um, the purpose to it. And, you know, of course, the adrenaline of it, which I think we can both attest to uh, having the adrenaline. Yeah, it's very addictive. Um, And I, you know, from that experience, I just, um, that is what was always interested me. And, you know, I, through high school, I did, you know, I'm going to make myself sound like a dork here, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, student government and model UN and uh, the debate club and all of that stuff while I was also, you know, doing my sports and everything else. Um, and uh, that was, I just always liked it. And went, got to travel around doing mock trials and debates and, and things like that. And, um, thought I wanted to be, you know, grow up and be a prosecutor. And I did go to law school, but I never practiced. So I think it's too late to go back on that. You would have been good at that. (laughs) Taunton was a, a, as you sort of suggest, a very much of a working class town. You went to Smith. Mm -hmm. That, that isn't, Smith, you don't associate Smith with like a working class. I mean, how many kids from Taunton went to Smith? Well, I, let me also say I was born in Taunton and Taunton is like the big yes. city around me. Uh, I grew up in Raynham, which is considered to be like, you know, a stepchild of Taunton. 
And, you know, there were actually two of us um, from my high school that went to Smith that year. Um, and it was, you know, the deal with my mother um, was, um, you know, she was bound and determined to get us into college and get us out of Raynham. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but the deal was we had to find a way to pay for it. You could go, but you had to find a way to pay for it. And so my brothers both went to military academies and uh, she had me look at Smith because Smith has a big endowment. You know, I only looked at schools with big endowments because of the scholarships. And, you know, when I was looking at it, I'm like, mom, I really don't want to go to a women's college. Um, and <laughs> she said, you're just going to look at it and you're going to apply. <laughs> and, uh -huh. you know, fast forward uh, a few months later, I'm going to Smith uh, and I got a scholarship. Um, so it was a, you know, it was a shift to go from my upbringing, bringing both just socioeconomically, um, but also, you know, in a family with uh, two brothers with tons of, you know, boy cousins and, um, and to a, to a woman's college. So um, there were lots of great things that I got out of it. I got a great education. I made some lifelong friendships. It strengthened me as a person. How, how did it strengthen you as a person? Well, I think you'd agree that have a sort of a fearless factor. Oh my God. <laughs> and which, you know, sometimes can lead to a, my downfall. <laughs> you didn't feel encumbered by anything in the classroom there, or, you know, I, not to say that I wasn't this person going into it, but I did see lots of young women who found their confidence in their voice after they came out of Smith. You also worked your way through college as well. I think you told me once that you washed dishes at the sorority house. Is that, did I get that right? Yes. So the housing system at Smith is not sororities, but it's set up as the house system, kind of like Harvard is see, yeah. a certain house. And I was in Wilson house and it was a great house. It was the head of the quad. Um, but I was on work. Part of my scholarship was work study. So I had to do menial jobs. You know, um, my first year I washed dishes at, you know, six to six to eight a.m. every morning. My second year, actually, funny story. Juliana Smoot, who is my yes. best friend from college, who you know very well, she and I both worked at what's called the physical plant, which was all of the you know electricians and plumbers and maintenance people that took care of the campus. And we would sit in the sit in the like the headquarter room and with walkie talkies and just you know, use the walkie talkie to say, you know, Joe, Joe, there's an electric problem in uh, Emerson house. And, and Juliana would be someplace else on her walkie talkie. And that's how we would, you know, let's just say we had some fun with it. I bet. Um, we weren't the, the, the star employees <laughs> that we should have been. <laughs> when you graduated, you had this passion for politics. You went to uh, Mario Cuomo's office. He was the governor of New York. Was that just a cold visit? Did you just walk in and say, I'd mm -hmm. like to work for you? Yeah. Well, actually, I, um, you know, after I graduated from college, I waitressed for a summer uh, at home to save up money. And then I moved to Washington with uh, my best friend from high school. And we came here, you know, with no leads, nothing, no jobs. And we both signed up for temp as temp in a temp agency. Um, to as secretaries, basically. Mm -hmm. And I went one day as a temp to answer phones to Cuomo's office. Um, and then the next day I came back and said, you really should hire me. Um, <laughs> I really want to work here. 
because Mario Cuomo, and it was just sheer luck that I uh, got that placement through the temp, temp agency, but Mario Cuomo was my hero. Yeah, why? Did you, was it that speech that he made at the convention? What, what is it about him and his politics that spoke to you? His speech at the convention was my first exposure. 1984, um, he gave the keynote speech at the uh, convention in San Francisco. He had just mm-hmm. been elected governor of New York two years earlier. Uh, these keynote speeches, uh, not all of them stand out, but that one... Very few of them do. In the midst of Reaganism, it was a really uh, powerful argument for a more humane, people-oriented mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. The shining city on the hill. and. Yes. I just, you know, I was young. I was freshman or sophomore year in high school. And I I just loved that speech and uh, the soaring rhetoric of it, but also the ability to articulate really what kind of country do you want to live in? Um, and that was the first time I had ever, you know, I, I got spoiled because that was the first time I ever saw somebody give a speech like that. Yeah. Um, and then I followed him. Um, from that point on through 88, and I was hoping he was going to run for president in 92. Um, and so I was, you know, he was on my list. I wanted to work for him and I just got lucky and started. Well, you got lucky because you went in and you and I, forced <laughs> you their hand. <laughs> um, and the thing is that you didn't, you, you didn't, you answered phones uh, at first, but you ended up doing speech writing and some meaningful mm-hmm. thing. How did, how did that? How did you move up from the phone bank to speech writing? For by the way, probably along with Obama in our lifetime, probably one of the great writers of speeches himself. Yes, yeah, and and believe me, my my work was not part of that. But <laughs> you know, I just took opportunities as I saw them in the office. When somebody was on vacation, I'd cover their issues. If um, they needed extra help if the governor was coming to D.C. I would volunteer and travel around with him. I would just take any opportunity that I could. And over time, the head of the office, Brad Johnson, who was very close to the governor and had basically been planning his presidential run, just gave me, you know, some great opportunities to get exposed to different things, whether it was managing some legislative issues on Capitol Hill or doing briefing papers for the governor or writing speeches or even driving when the governor would come to town or when Mrs. Cuomo would come to town, um, I would drive with the, the state troopers, <laughs> the cars, which was always interesting because I never, I didn't know where I was going in Washington because I had never <laughs> owned a car here. Um, so there were a few, few moments of getting lost and, you know, almost a few fender benders. The troopers always got a kick out of it. Um, <laughs> But uh, I was just given lots of opportunities that I just grabbed onto and uh, learned a ton in that job. Mario Cuomo, I mean, it was very dramatic. Uh, the, the whole 92 decision, there was a plane mm-hmm. sitting on the runway in Albany with his signed papers to that would have enrolled him into the uh, New Hampshire primary. And that plane never took off. No, and the plane he decided, was on the tarmac. Left him on, yeah. Uh, how much of your heart was left on that tarmac, too, as a young kid? Were you... Uh... <laughs> a lot. I mean, the entire office, you know, so it was probably a 20, 25-person office in D.C., and that was, you know, we spent a lot of time doing a lot of planning for a uh, presidential run, and then the 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 budget deadline was that, or the filing deadline for New Hampshire was that day, but the governor was trying to pass a budget, 
um, and Republicans wouldn't let him pass the budget for the purpose of him missing the filing deadline in New Hampshire. So we watched it all unfold and there were a lot of tears that night. Um, and it was, it was this big dramatic moment that I'll never forget, but it was also at that time, one of the big political moments, um, of that race. A prodigious figure in American politics, it, it, a presidential level talent. I mean, there was mm-hmm. no, no doubt. And then he turned down an opportunity to be on the Supreme Court as well. So you, uh, dried up your tears and moved over to uh, Bill Clinton uh, and got on the Clinton team. After Cuomo didn't run, I did, you know, some advance work for Clinton, which as you and I know, as a 21 year old at that point is the low person on the totem pole Yeah, and, and just loved it. And the people around him, you know, was, it was basically ushering in a new generation of people in politics. And, you know, after he won, I, you know, applied to law school, went to law school at night, and then ended up going and interning while I was going to law school at night for him on the healthcare task force. And I, because I was in law school, I did all of the legal stuff and antitrust and all of that stuff that comes with healthcare reform. So you're doing that by day and law school by night. Mm-hmm. And then after that, in 94, didn't you go over to the EPA? Yes. In the fall of 94, I went to EPA to work for Carol Browner. Carol Browner was the administrator yes. of the EPA, and it was right before the 94 election, in which, um, to use President Obama's term, Democrats got shellacked. Yes. And, you know, Mary Cuomo lost his governorship. And Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House. Right. And those guys made the EPA, like, one A of their target. principal targets. Mm-hmm. A big target. Um, in the contract with America, they wanted to defund EPA. But also in just passing the budgets, they tried to defund the clean water program, the clean air program. And um, so it became a major, uh, a primary component of uh, President Clinton's agenda. And, you know, we spent the next two years beating back the contract with America um, because whatever bill was moving, there was constant riders, which are, you know, pieces of legislation that get attached to um, larger pieces of legislation to do something to the EPA. So we were constantly beating it back. Um, and it was um, politically, they thought, it, you know, the, the Gingrich people thought it was a winning issue for them because they were tearing down government, but it was a- actually an incredibly winning issue for us. It turns out people like clean drinking water. Yeah. It turns out people think? like to breathe clean air. You know, I always say there are call cutter moments when something really, really bad is happening and you need to go to battle. That was a good training ground for battles. Great training ground. That must have been all consuming. And to do that in law school at the same time must have been a chore. I I imagine sleep was the thing that you decided to sacrifice. Yeah, there wasn't much sleep. But I will also, you know, share a little secret. After my first year of law school, when I did incredibly well in my first year of law review and everything, Second, after that, <laughs> slipped a little. Did you slipped a little? I, you know, there were there were semesters uh, that some of my friends still joke about that I didn't even buy the books. Um, <laughs> I got my own stories, my friend, I could share, but that's what happens when you get the political bug. I made it through, did fine, but um, thanks to a lot of good friends that would share their notes with me. <laughs> so it was it was busy. It took me four years to get through law school including going through summers, just so that I could balance work and going to school. But I wasn't the only one doing it. 
We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. At the end of the Clinton administration, you moved into the White House, in White House communications. Talk about battles. Um, Yeah. You were there during the Monica Lewinsky period. Tell me about that. And you're you're a young woman at this point, and this is an awful story. Mm -hmm. And tell me what was going through your mind. Were you just like, I'm in my battle station. My job is to defend this president. That's what I'm going to do. Or were there moments when you said, man, this is, this is not a good picture. Not really. I'm not really comfortable with it. Uh, all of the above. And there were lots of women and men um, in the administration that were really disappointed and uncomfortable uh, with what happened. Um, but my job was to uh, not go out and defend him, but to drive a communication strategy that diverted from it. Yeah. Um, and so that we were feeding the beast and showing that the president was still doing his job and still doing good things for the country. You guys did a incredible job of separating, almost walling off the Lewinsky story, mm-hmm. leaving it to the lawyers to speak to it and just uh, treating it as a distraction, as you say, and trying to send the signals at all times that he was focused on the issues that were important to people's lives. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why, despite all that, he actually had a successful midterm election in the midst of this and left with a a very positive job approval rating, Mm -hmm. despite, we all have to acknowledge, a a very dark story. Mm -hmm. I mean, with an impeachment. At that time, you know, this is way before Donald Trump. Yes. We didn't (laughs) have once a year back then. And I came in at the tail end of the Lewinsky stuff. And um, so, and I, you know, as much as I had a problem with that chapter of President Clinton's, I truly believed in what he was doing for the country. And um, so being able to package that up and put plans together and, you know, um, and drive uh, policy um, was what I really enjoyed. Let let me ask you, because I agree, I mean, listen, I was an admirer of, of Clinton's uh, political skills, what he accomplished. But looking back through the prism of the Me Too era, I, I include myself in this. How do we square our willingness to rationalize that or at least put it in a box? Yeah. You know, you could never, ever survive that today. How do I feel about it? You know, as a 20-something-year-old who kind of grew up in that world where, you know, I have tons of stories of I, I can only imagine. getting on an elevator on Capitol Hill and having a old male congressman make a comment about my looks in front of a crowd in a crowded elevator. You know, that's humiliating. Or going to a meeting on Capitol Hill with one of my bosses and have whoever the member was single me out because of my appearance or something that you know, had nothing to do with my abilities. And that stuff happened all the time. And it was par for the course. And it wasn't acceptable, but that's where we were as a country. And it was hard to, you know, I, I sort of just, I didn't rationalize it. I just knew that 
what these men were doing, they were foolish. Um, and that I was strong enough and I did have these abilities and I could power through it and I could get past them and never look back at them. And that's how I dealt with it. And if I ever had an issue that truly made me feel uncomfortable, and I would say something. But it doesn't, uh, on the question of Clinton himself, I mean, I just struggle with that. I struggle Mm -hmm. with that. I think a lot of people do. You know, it doesn't obviate all the great things that he did. But Mm -hmm. if you were going to dismiss something like that, then the parameters are way out of whack. Right. And and did it delay progress in this country? You know, did it delay us getting to the Me Too movement because it was people turned a blind eye to what had happened in the 90s. Right. You know, I, it's, it's something that, you know, we all think about a lot and what would have been different had we done something about it. What was the recourse? Quitting or not defending him? You know, those, I guess, are options. You know, just like we think about the, the people that work for Donald Trump, we always, you know, wondered why didn't those people quit? Instead of leaking to the press about how bad he was, why don't they just quit? And their rationale was that we can, we can impact what's happening if we stay on the inside. We mm-hmm. can protect him from his worst instincts. And I don't think they were, you know, we don't know exactly what happened on the inside, but from what we see on the outside, it didn't seem they were that successful at that. I'm not prosecuting you. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, and I'm not. The environment, uh, you know, I've worked in the White House. You've worked in the White House several mm-hmm. times. And... Um, it is a invigorating, intoxicating place to be because of all the things that happen there uh, that can actually impact on the lives of people, that can impact on the world. It is like the nerve center of the world. It's a hard place to leave. Uh, and so, uh, you know, w- w- uh, we get that. But you did leave because Gore didn't win. There was no Democratic administration. You went to work on the Hill for Ted Kennedy, a uh, really iconic figure in the history of the United States Senate, certainly in the history of Massachusetts. And you became more than just an aide to Kennedy. You became a f- family member in some mm-hmm. ways, right yeah. to the end. Tell me about your relationship with Ted Kennedy and tell me about him as a person. So so after the Clinton White House, I actually took a brief hiatus and worked for AOL because, you know, that was... AOL was the the hot place to be. You know, it's before the tech bubble popped. Yes. For for young people here, that's different than AOC. Okay, <laughs> yes. so this was an early AOL. internet company. Yes, you've got mail. Um, <laughs> and I went there to do communications there. And do you remember it was right around the time of the big Microsoft lawsuit, and AOL was a party to it. And I wanted to work on that lawsuit. And um, I didn't get selected to work on it. I got selected to do fashion shows with Mary Kate and Ashley Olson. Again, for the young people on here, <laughs> they were part of Full House at the time. I can see on this Zoom how excited you were about that, exci- <laughs> yes. uh, that assignment. <laughs> so my friend Mary Beth Cahill called me up one day, you know, right around the time of the Mary Kate Ashley blow up for me. Um, and she was chief of staff to Ted Kennedy and said, will you come interview for the communications director role? And I jumped at it. Um, and I went in and met with Senator Kennedy and we met in his hideaway, which are those small offices in the Capitol building that Mm -hmm. senior senators get. And he had a famous hideaway because he would have, you know, world leaders come and have, uh, bilats there. He would have, you know, great negotiations happened in that hideaway. And over and over some 
tumblers of whiskey, probably some great <laughs> deals were cut there as well. Yeah. And we just hit it off. You know, he, um, he learned that I was from Rainham and uh, grew up going to the Cape for the summers. We talked about the Cape Cod Railroad and, you know, how he would take it from college down to Hyannis and I would take it from college down to Wareham, Massachusetts, where my family went. And we just had, we, we hit it off on a personal level. We didn't even talk about the job. We didn't even talk about my skill sets or my resume. He didn't care about any of that. He just wanted to see if he would click with me. And we did. And when I got the job, you know, at this point I had graduated from law school. I had worked for, for President Clinton and you know, I thought I had done pretty well for myself, but my mother, as soon as I got that job, you know, she she said, finally, <laughs> finally, you've done something. <laughs> working for a Kennedy. Because I was working for a Kennedy, uh, yeah. which in Massachusetts is a big deal. You know, we had a picture of the Pope and we had President Kennedy on our walls. Um, and, um, and it, you know, I worked for him for a long time and it was um, the the best thing I will have done other than having my son, the best thing I will have ever done in my life. Um, because there was nobody that worked harder. Um, there was nobody who really understood politics, um, the good kind of politics um, of how you can improve people's lives, how you can move things forward, how you're always making progress, even in a setback. Um, and also how you treat your colleagues. You know, yeah. he was, you know, even uh, even across the aisle, he was loved. Well, that, I mean, it was extraordinary just to go to his memorial service and, you know, see the people who, you know, the Orrin Hatches and the John McCains. And mm -hmm. I, when I, you know, McCain, I did a TV podcast thing with him a few years back. And he, he was just, um, you know, he was almost misty-eyed talking about Kennedy and fighting with Kennedy on the floor and then throwing their arms around each other and laughing. Yeah, they the loved way. it. Yeah. And they would play practical jokes on other senators and, you know, some funny stuff. And they, uh, Kennedy and McCain had the same sharp wit and sense of humor. So just to even sit in a room with them was, um, you know, I wish I just carried around a video recorder to capture it because it was like some of the funniest stuff um, that I've ever listened to, witnessed. Um, and um, they became great friends because they both viewed the Senate the same way, um, that they were there for a reason to, to not block things from happening, but to get things done. Um, and, you know, there were plenty of things that they didn't agree on, uh, but there was lots that they did. And coming from very different um, places politically, you know, a conservative Republican from Arizona and a uh, liberal Democrat, the liberal, the liberal lion, the, of the, the liberal lion, the most, yeah. And whether it was patient bill of rights or immigration or campaign finance or Ireland or, um, you know, all of these things, they, they found they ways to, yeah. to work together. I mean, this and, is what obviously has gone out of our politics. I right. mean, now you, we are so tribal that even if we have issues on which we, we can work together, it is perilous to cross that aisle and cooperate mm -hmm. with each other. And that's a really dangerous thing uh, for democracy. He, uh, I'm sure he thought he was doing you a favor when he recommended you to be the communications director for his friend John Kerry when John Kerry ran for president in 2000. Oh, he didn't just recommend me. He insisted. <laughs> he ordered me. <laughs> yeah. You know, at that time, uh, Kerry was like 40 points down and, um, and the deal was I just had to get him through New Hampshire without, 
really embarrassing himself because he was the hometown boy. You know, yeah. a senator from Massachusetts is considered the hometown um, senator in New Hampshire if you're running for president. And Kennedy just wanted to make sure Kerry got through New Hampshire in a respectable way. And yeah, it was a call cutter moment. So they sent you over there. Well, Mary Beth Cahill also got sent yeah. over as the campaign yeah. manager, and I was the communications director. And, you know, Kerry, um, you know, he was great to work for, and we came at a time where there was a bit of a shift happening yeah. um, in the race, and uh, it was the fall of 2003, and we had de- made the decision that we were just going to go all in on Iowa uh, with the idea that, you know, if we get if we come out of Iowa in first, second, or third position, it would... Momentum. New Hampshire. Right. And it worked. It worked. In fact, we, you know, came out, we, we won Iowa yeah. um, and got to work with some great political minds, you know, Michael Hooley and mm-hmm. Jack Corrigan and sort of the Boston political mafia. Yes. And it's where I really cut my teeth on that kind of politics. Uh, there's so much to talk about. And I could talk about this for a long time, but I just want to talk about one element of it. He lost. Mm hmm. And you took, unfairly in my view, a terrible beating in the media, Mm -hmm. in the political world, were blamed for him not responding to these swift boat attacks in the summer, which were as much a, I I understand, a financial decision as anything more than, it it wasn't your strategic uh, advice. In fact, I've never actually known you to say, let's just sit back and see what happens. (laughs) That doesn't seem like you. But I want to ask you, you you were 35, 36 years old, and you had this really prodigious, this, 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 this prolific rise, incredible rise, and now you got the backlash uh, of mm-hmm. all of that. And how did you process that? That must have been devastating. Uh, it was, I mean, first, the loss was devastating. Um, but then when all, you know, it was basically one article, the Newsweek article and mm-hmm. Newsweek book that came out that... Um, was very harsh on me and Mary Beth and uh, Mrs. Uh, Teresa Hines, John Kerry's wife, and a lot of the women. And it was so harsh that there was a backlash against that. Mm-hmm. Um, and But for me personally, yes, I was incredibly hurt and um, lots of sleepless nights and tears and, you know, um, but the, the one thing that ultimately saved me again was Ted Kennedy. You mm-hmm. know, the day I was landing back in Washington after the concession speech in Boston, um, my phone rings and it's Senator Kennedy. And he said, um, I think you need to come back to this office. And I said, Oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, I, I think you really need to come back to this <laughs> office. Um, and what he was doing there is that he could see the writing on the wall and you know, he'd seen this uh, story before and he knew what was about to happen to me. And he thought that if I came back to his office, he could give some protection to me. And and I ultimately did go back to his office and um, I learned, you know, not from him, but from people around Washington that wherever he went, he would um, he would bring me up and um, talk about me positively. Like, do you know this woman who works for me, Stephanie Cutter, she's, you know, the greatest, yada, yada, yada. Um, and it would re- get reported back to me by friends around town who happened to be at whatever meeting it was at. 
and what he was doing single-handedly was trying to restore my reputation. <laughs> and, you know, one day we we're on an elevator in the Capitol and I said, oh, you know, so-and-so called me, he said he was at that dinner with you last night and you said some really nice things about me. And the senator's like, hmm, what? I don't know. What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. Uh, I'm like, well, I'm sure you didn't do it, but if you did do it, you know, really, it was really, uh, thank you. I really, I really appreciate it. Um, but that's the kind of guy he was, you know, he didn't want you to know he was doing it. Right. He was just going to do it. But that was the best decision I ever made was going back to his office. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. He called me in the summer of 2008. He was ill and he wanted to talk to me and he wanted to make the case why John Kerry should be the vice presidential candidate. Yeah, I remember that. And it was really moving, actually. His loyalty was moving. I'm certain that he didn't tell Kerry he was calling. But, um, you know, my all my interactions with him underscore your points about him. Let me just ask you one last question about Ted Kennedy because we got to, there's so many other things I need to talk to you about before we run out of time. You managed everything around his illness and uh, what did it mean to you when he got sick, when he was struggling, and when he died? Because to me, you know, you like I said, your relationship was a familial relationship. Mm-hmm. He he was more to you than just a, a good boss. The day I got the call from Vicky that I needed to get up to Boston, um, that something had happened, um, and the senator was being medevaced to Mass General from the Cape, I flew up there and we didn't know exactly what was happening, um, but it it became pretty clear pretty quickly within a day that it was bad. Um, and he was diagnosed with glioblastoma. Um, and, and, you know, the, my job and all of that was to keep the press at bay, control the information that was going out and preserve, you know, the, the ability of this great man, great legislature, the most, you know, productive senator in history, the ability for him to continue to do his job. And um, so um, figuring out how to talk about it with the public, um, showing uh, people that he was okay, you know, and he, he was okay. He dealt with it. You know, I sat in the room when he was told um, and he, you know, he was a, a champ. What about you, Stephanie, though? What did you think when you heard the diagnosis? When you're in a situation like that, you're, you're all about doing the job. And I was so focused on getting the job done. And, you know, I remember having to read the statement I wrote that was going to go out uh, to describe uh, what he had, um, what he was diagnosed mm-hmm. with, and just sitting in his hospital room reading him the statement. And he nodding and, yes, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Totally composed. And I walked out of that room. And I went and I hid in a corridor and cried, just cried. I got it out of my system. And, you know, of course, I felt, a, you know, a, a member of my family, somebody that I had admired and looked up to and who had taken care of me. Kind of a father figure to you. Yes. Was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And he thought of you that way, because I know. 
yeah, no, he, he definitely took care of me and looked out for me and, um, and I, I'll never forget it. And, you know, I would have done anything for him. So I, you know, I had a job to do. I had Mm -hmm. to, you know, they had died. They, when he was diagnosed, he was basically given two months to live. He ended up living 16 months, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, and we needed to preserve the time for him to continue to get things done. You know, President Obama was running for office. So, uh, Kennedy had endorsed Obama. Yes. Uh, Kennedy had big hopes of what Obama could do, namely healthcare reform. Yes. So my job was to preserve the ability for Kennedy to get that done and to let the world know enough about what was happening with him, but not so much that people wouldn't trust him to do these things. So there wasn't a lot of time for being morose. No, but I almost didn't go on the Obama campaign because of it. The day he left the hospital um, after that stint when he was diagnosed is the day that Anita Dunn called me um, to see if I would come on the Obama campaign as Michelle's chief of staff. And I said, no, you know, I, I was well, so tired. Well, you and I had a conversation and, about it as well. Yes, we did yes. Uh, about a week later. And you later. said, I don't do girls' work. I didn't say it like that. I think it was something like it. I said, I'm not really a spouse type person. Uh, um, and I you said, Stephanie, I'm not looking you, looking for you to wear an apron and carry a spatula and <laughs> yes. tell me your favorite recipes. <laughs> you know why we called you. We called you because Michelle Obama, people don't remember this now because she is such a media icon and she's so comfortable uh, in front of the camera. And But she had been assaulted by Fox News and others. And um, she was a person who, you know, she was used to excelling. That was her whole life was. And now she felt like she was failing and she felt like she had been let down and she had been by the campaign. And we called you because we needed you to resuscitate her. So tell me what, how did that happen? How, tell me about your relationship with her. So I had said, no, I can't. Senator Kennedy's sick. I need to do this. Um, I think Anita probably said, well, I want you to talk to Axe. And I talked to you. And then I finally agreed to come to Chicago to meet with her. And then once I met with her, it was done. She is one of the most compelling figures I've ever met. And we hit it off. I mean, we're similar in a lot of ways in our preparedness and our planning and our attention to details. (laughs) Some might call it anal. And our straightforwardness. and. Um, you know, I was hired as her chief of staff and our relationship was great. And, you know, (laughs) you know how this story ends. (laughs) Yeah. The thing about Michelle that people need to understand is is she is exactly as you described. And she wants to know what is the plan? What are the expectations? Mm -hmm. What is the strategy? What is my role in it? Uh, And um, she hadn't been getting that. And uh, you gave her that, and it gave her confidence. And once she had confidence, all that natural ability came to the fore. I basically just gave her the infrastructure to for her to be her and to make some strategic decisions so that what some on the other side were trying to do to her, they couldn't do. Um, you know, they, a lot of and, you know, we never know exactly who was pushing it, but whoever uh, in the right wing, the things that they couldn't say about um, set, then Senator Obama, they would say about Michelle Obama. Um, and that had, there was a real danger of it spinning out of control. So I just put the infrastructure around her 
to push be back that, but also for her to just be her. And once she was confident that she could be herself, then she just took off like a meteor. After the campaign, you went to work uh, first in the Treasury Department for Tim Geithner during a very difficult period for him, another call cutter situation. And then um, you work with me because I am not all those things that you described, you know, organized. <laughs> and I, I needed you as well. And in 2012, you were the communications director. You ran the show, uh, really the communications show. You also became the kind of, you were absolutely the best spokesperson we had in that uh, campaign. And you did a lot of on-camera stuff. Um, after that, you you know, sometime after the campaign, you went to work at CNN, you doing uh, a reprise of Crossfire. Interestingly, it was it was Van Jones. Uh, it was S.E. Cup. It was you and Newt Gingrich, who Newt tormented Gingrich. you back when you were a kid working for the EPA. You guys right. ever sit down and talk about those times? Sure, we did. I said I never thought in a million years I would end up in a position like this. And it turns out it, like, he was great to work with. You know, uh, we come from extremely different places ideologically. And I say extremely, and I'm being <laughs> kind there. They've become more extreme over time. We became friends. And um, and I became friends with uh, his wife, Callista. And, mm -hmm. you know, we still exchange Christmas cards and mm -hmm. uh, emails. And You know that there will be people who hear this podcast who, and I have had a good relationship. Came to the Institute of Politics. I've had a good relationship with him as well. Who will say, "How can you have a cordial relationship with him?" Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, I'm not. What I'm saying is that's the state of our politics. Oh, I know, I know. The dirty secret, and you know this too, that some of my best friends here in Washington are, uh, or across the country, are people that I campaigned against. Yes. You know, Steve Schmidt, a dear yes. friend of mine, and he was the yeah. person on the other campaign that I was fighting against for a good decade of my life. You know, Nicole Wallace, you know, uh, Kevin Madden, that, you know, once you go through the trenches and that very few people get to go through those trenches, you respect the person on the other side who who went along those trenches with you. And, you know, I wouldn't say that Newt and I have exactly that relationship that I have with Steve or yes. Kevin or Nicole, but, you know, you can learn a lot from just listening. And it's very easy to put people in boxes and not uh, relate to them as, right. as human beings. And we also, we were both Catholics. That was a lot of the basis of our discussions. Um, something, you know, his... Uh, Callista Gingrich is very involved in the Catholic Church. She was yeah, the, she's the ambassador, ambassador of the Vatican. Of the Vatican. Yeah. And I had just had my son Declan and I was going through the baptism and all of that. So there, you know, it was th that type of friendship. We weren't exactly dissecting healthcare policy. You mentioned Declan. Let me ask you about this. You made a decision, uh, you know, in your, I guess right after the campaign or during that period when you were doing the crossfire that you were going to have a child and you were going to do it yourself. How hard a decision was that? I so admired you for it. Well, there's this thing called the clock, and mm -hmm. it was ticking. Um, and so I had to, if I was going to do it, I, I had to do it. And um, I decided that I wasn't going to wait to find the perfect relationship or marriage to check that box off before I did it. And I made a decision to do it on my own, and it was 
obviously it was the best decision I ever made, but going through it, it was scary and lots of self-doubt and am I making the right decision here? Am I going to be able to do this? And what I tell lots of young women who are now doing it, because every, you know, it's uh, much more common, is that you never 100% feel like it's the right decision until you see that baby. But once you see that baby, there's not one doubt left in your mind because it's a scary thing to do on your own, but it was worth every second of it. Yeah. You you run this uh, extraordinary uh, public affairs company, Precision Media, that you uh, form with... um, Jen O'Malley Dillon and and Teddy Goff. Veterans of many campaigns. Jen O'Malley Dillon now in the White House as deputy Mm -hmm. chief of staff. She was the campaign manager of the Biden campaign in the general. You're in a a good position to do that, to take care of your child. You don't Mm -hmm. have those pressures. But still, you do have the pressures of trying to balance this... you know, incredible workload that you have and having a young child. And I mean, I've seen you guys together. I've, I've spoken to you from soccer fields, I think, or baseball <laughs> diamonds and mm-hmm. so on. Um, how's it been balancing your sort of turbocharged life with that? You know, there are moments where you're you're waiting for the house of cards to just come tr- crumbling down. But I think most working moms, uh, working parents have that feeling. I made a decision though, you know, the whole reason I started Precision is so that I could have the flexibility that I needed to do, to have a child. You know, I could make my own schedule. I could, Mm -hmm. you know, work from home. I could do whatever I needed to do. And I had made a decision that I would be home every night by six o'clock, except for the nights that I was doing Crossfire. If I was doing Crossfire, I would get home at seven. As a baby, he would be in bed. So I would go into work late the next morning so I could spend time with him. But I just made a decision that that was going to be my life. That was the priority. So no more White Houses, no more presidential campaigns, no more any of that. I was just, that was it. And it's been a great life. But you did play a role in the campaign, and we should finish uh, here. Uh, you, uh, I remember you calling me in March of 2020, I think it was about March, saying, yeah, I just got called. They asked me to do the convention. And we're in the midst of this pandemic. I I think we talked in that discussion. I said, well, you know what? This is not going to be a, you're not going to be able to gather. And and a month later, that became official. You had to recreate the the political convention uh, as a virtual event. And in doing it, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. You reinvented the political convention, which had been an anachronism. Mm-hmm. And I say that as someone who was involved in planning two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you turned it into very compelling television. Tell me what was running through your head and what, what your guiding principles were. You know, it went through many, many different iterations because at first, because of the pandemic, we moved the date of the convention a month later. Then it was going to be a hybrid convention with just the delegates there and not the tens of thousands of people that travel to a convention to go to parties and fundraisers and all of that stuff, to then just the candidates in Wisconsin and everything else virtual to a 100% virtual convention. Um, Through that process, you know, I kind of decided, what are the things that we want to preserve here? Because this is not going to be like, you know, any other convention that we've been to. So what do we need to preserve? And what do we need to get rid of? And the things that we preserve, how do we reinvent it to fit this format? And, you know, I decided that this was, this couldn't be a series of speeches, political speeches, because people would just shut it off. It had to be, we had to produce a TV show. So we literally produced it 
with, you know, act one, act two, act three, with this, you know, the storyline being pulled through, which bridged to the next night. Um, and, and we created a real diverse set of content so that, um, it just kept viewers attention. Um, and it was, you know, in some ways acts, it was a lot easier to, from a message perspective yeah. to, to tell a story that way than you could in a normal convention where, you know, you've got these politicians getting up there and yeah, to feed all those hungry mouths of politicians yeah. who want to speak. You don't have to, you didn't have to do that, but you also had some very compelling people speaking. And the thing I think you did who were real authentic human beings telling really authentic Mm-hmm. Uh, stories. Braden Harrington, is that the young man's right. name? The yeah. 13-year-old kid, stutterer, who had an encounter with Biden. One of the most memorable moments uh, that I can think of in any uh, convention. But the thing that I thought strategically as a strategist that was so mm-hmm. brilliantly done was the invocation at so many different junctures of faith, of family, of connection mm-hmm. to the military, uh, things that you that really created an armor for they were authentically biden and they mm-hmm. created an armor against the attacks that were going to come that mm-hmm. he was somehow a radical socialist and right and uh it made hollow those attacks and that was i i i admired the production was brilliantly done the strategy was even better and uh, and we should point out as we go out here because i'm running over time that uh, you also <laughs> You did so well with this that they asked you to do the inauguration as well. That mm-hmm. production uh, has been nominated for an Emmy. Yes. Uh, so if there are any, any Emmy voters, any, listening, Emmy voters to listening to this podcast, you, you really got to vote for this. <laughs> I mean, you don't have any choice. <laughs> it's called Celebrating America. Yes. Celebrating, Celebrating America, America. And it's nominated for Outstanding Variety Special Live. So I just want to say one thing about both of these productions, that neither of them would be as successful as they were without Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. You know, that convention told his life story and his story is so rich with ups and downs. And, you know, it's it was almost impossible not to forge an emotional connection with viewers um, telling that story. And the same with the inaugural, you know, if you look at the celebrating America program that we produced, um, from the Lincoln, that is basically how he ran his campaign, that the, the messaging, the dialogue, it wasn't about celebrating a new president. It was celebrating the perseverance, strength and perseverance of the American people and the strength of our democracy. Um, and that was very true to who he was how he ran for president. In fact, what he said at the Capitol earlier that day. Um, so um, those, th- you know, that was really the secret sauce of both of those programs, um, having Joe Biden be at the, either the top of the ticket or having been sworn in, you know, I'm not sure if it would have been as successful with a different candidate. Well, there are a lot of sauces, but it's, it's important to have a good chef. So, uh, and you did a wonderful- Here we are talking about our spatulas again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all these years later. Stephanie, I'm proud to call you a friend. I love you. And uh, if I were an Emmy voter, I'd be leading that campaign. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to be with you too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, 
Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.